0: Well, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Good, good. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Romans 8. Romans 8. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have ushers going up and down the aisles right now. Just raise your hand. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand today so you can follow along. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. Please take that um, and have that as a gift. Uh, if you recall, we're obviously in this series on how people change, and the last couple weeks Pastor Cal has been in Romans 7, and last week he, uh, uh, he's talking about this battle raging both outside of us and inside of us, and the fact that we have a very real enemy that tempts us to sin, and our flesh that's so easily lured and enticed by temptation, even though we have this desire to live. Like Paul says, I want to do the good things, but, it, but my flesh makes me do the bad bad things. I have a desire to do what is good, but I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do. And he has this verse in there in chapter 7, where he says, just in desperation, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, I don't want to get morbid here this morning, but has anybody experienced that feeling before? I'm not the only one, right? We've, we've experienced this before, where you kind of, you go through this season of life, and you're just like, Come on, God, what is going on? Like, I'm desperate. I need a change. It's a cry for help. I think we've we've been there. And I love what it says in verse 25 in chapter 7, leading into where we will be in chapter 8. But it says, But thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord, For I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. In other words, he says, my mind knows the truth and is founded on the truth that I can't save myself, but God did that for me through Jesus. Praise God. And because God did what I could not do myself, even though I struggle, my salvation is secure through Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome, church? And look where he goes into chapter 8. You've probably heard this before, especially if you've been in church your whole life or anywhere near a church. This is a common verse. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore, after what Paul just described in the battle of sin and flesh and being in, in Christ and how God made a way out of no way for us, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of death. No condemnation. Come on now, church, are we awake at 11 o'clock this morning? No condemnation. Curses broken people. It says life and freedom in Christ Jesus by the law of the Spirit. We don't have to be enslaved by the law of sin and death anymore. We're not condemned anymore. Praise God. Now, what on earth does that mean practically? I think we get real excited in church to talk about there's no condemnation in Christ. There's no condemnation in Christ. But I think many people in the church live in a way that proves that we have no idea what this means. It kind of reminds me of high school, in fact. My senior year of high school, I uh, did pretty well in high school, actually. I finished top nine in my class, and I say that because I was ninth. I don't want to say top 10 and then have the next question be like, well, which one were you? I was nine out of 750, so I'm just kidding. It was 52. Don't think too highly of me. (laughs) I I barely made the top 20% of my class by being ninth, okay? But I was doing really well in school, basically straight A's, a couple B's mixed in here and there, Um, but it was my last semester, my senior year at Western Michigan Christian High School, and I was going into the dreaded government class with Mr. Arkema. Anybody in the room know what I'm talking about? You can relate, maybe. This guy was a little bit feared among the students. He was rough around the edges, but I can tell you, and I should give honor where honor is due, uh, if it's in my power to do so. This guy really had a heart to help kids grow in their learning. Well, I was going into this class and I had um, walked into government class with Mr. Arkema. We go through the first unit, and at the end of the unit, we were expected to write a paper. And so I wrote the paper, I turned it in. Um, I had aced English all the way up through middle school and high school, writing papers all the time. I knew how to write papers. So I turned the paper in, and a couple days later, Mr. Arkham pulls me aside and he says, Who taught you how to write a paper? I was like, this institution, <laughs> the one you worked for. Uh, th- I mean, I went through the whole system. I learned how to write a paper here, and he said this. I'm never going to forget this. He's like, I don't know how you got this far in high school writing like this. You have no idea what it means to write a paper. There's no flow of thought. There's no continuity. This is just messy. He's like, it's not good. I'm like, excuse me, sir. I mean, that didn't feel very good, and, but this, get this, this is what I loved about this guy. He was feared, but he was loving enough to say, you're about to go into college. You're a semester away from going to college. You're gonna have to learn how to do, you need to know how to do this. And he walked alongside me the rest of that semester and helped me figure out exactly what it meant and how to write a good paper. And I tell you, I went all the way through college, never struggled writing a paper since that point. I thank God for him to be able to have the boldness in my life to come into my life and say, you have a problem. You don't know what this means, but let me help you figure out what this means. And here's my fear today. Some of you have gone a long stretch of life or maybe a long season of life where you've had on the outward appearance been crushing high school, but you don't know how to write a paper. You may know all the verbiage, you may know all the things about Christianity, all the things to do of what the Bible says, and even say amen at the end of we aren't condemned. Yes, amen, but secretly you might be thinking to yourself, then why do I still feel trapped? Why do I still have guilt? Why do I still feel like push come to shove? I don't know if I'm saved, or I don't. I especially don't know what it means to live in the spirit, to actually have a life marked by freedom in Christ. And if that's you, if you have that feeling at all in your heart right now, would you humble yourself to allow me to be so bold as to be Mr. Arkema in your life and and say, you may not know what this means, but let me point you to God's word and tell you exactly what it means. So here's the big question this morning. What does spirit life look like? What does it actually look like? And to help us out this morning, I want to have a chart going on the screen, but also in your notes that kind of contrasts the difference between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. But before we dive into the passage, I need to define what I mean by the flesh and by what I mean, what the Bible means by when it says the flesh. When the Bible uses the term flesh, it both means our physical bodies, of course, but it also is a rhetorical term. Um, that means selfishness or sinfulness. The Bible often uses the term flesh to replace sinfulness, the word sinfulness, saying in the flesh. And our flesh and our spirit are always at battle. Just like Pastor Cal taught on last week, it's the reality that our flesh and our emotions want us to do the opposite of what we know the spirit, God's spirit, would want us to do in our lives. In Galatians five seventeen. Says this, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. James 1 talks about how it's our flesh, our sinfulness, that is tempted from the enemy when we are lured and enticed by our own desires from the flesh. The flesh's desires to sin, whereas the spirit's desires to empower you, to indwell you, to glorify the Lord. The fleshly desires lead to the same two ditches of selfishness that Pastor Cal referenced the last couple weekends where we have moralism and rebellion. Remember these? Both lead to the ultimate end of self-worship, not Christ worship. Living in the flesh will never satisfy us like living in step with the Spirit. So let's jump into the passage now and look at what spirit life actually looks like. Here's the first contrast that we see. The first thing we see is that in the flesh we live condemned, but in the spirit we live forgiven. Have you ever heard the phrase dead man walking? Do you know this phrase in history past? I'm not talking about the walking dead, okay? Not, not zombies, two very different things here, okay? Dead man walking, this was a phrase that would be shouted out before the person who was called the condemned would walk down the hallway to the room where he would be executed because of his crimes. Living in the flesh, condemned, is no different than being a dead man walking. Apart from Christ, our flesh, our sinfulness, it condemns us, meaning we're on borrowed time. We're awaiting the gallows. Worse yet, apart from Christ, our condemnation is ultimately eternity separated from the Lord in hell. Every one of us in this room are condemned by our sinfulness because of our flesh. Galatians 5, 19 20 even fleshes out what this looks like. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is our end in the flesh, it's death. It's condemnation. Condemnation is a legal term. We have to realize this. When someone is condemned, it means that the evidence is overwhelmingly and unquestionably guilty against that person. Those who are guilty in the flesh, which we all are, are condemned. It doesn't matter how hard we try to strive to do good things in life or to try to fill that side of the scale that we've built in our heart to try to say that we're better than so-and-so or maybe we've had enough good things in our life that outweigh the bad things. None of that matters. Our flesh condemns us because our flesh is sinful sinful. Beyond repair, but thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we are in Christ Jesus, we have his spirit, and his spirit sets us free. Freedom is a result of forgiveness by the Father, and that forgiveness came at a cost. Notice what it says here in that same passage. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his son Jesus in our place in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. What it says is that God... Willingly condemned his own son in your place. He took your condemnation, your sinfulness, and took that and placed it on his son who didn't deserve it. He became sin for us. Jesus, who came in the flesh but lived perfectly, unstained by sin, became the condemned one in our place to satisfy the penalty of sin and thereby giving us forgiveness, not only to save us from eternity apart from him, but to. Give us the power and the ability to walk, as it says, according to the Spirit. This is because of uh, this truth. It's because of this truth that Jesus died for you and for me to deliver us from this body of death. It's because of that. When we walk in the Spirit, it magnifies Christ and the beauty of the gospel. This means that our lives are like giant magnifying glasses. If you live in the flesh, you're just magnifying your ultimate death and condemnation. But if you live in the spirit, you're magnifying the beauty of the gospel and you're magnifying Christ and his glory. And that is a freeing thing to live in. He gave us his spirit to be alive in us. He gave us his spirit to live a life marked by forgiveness and freedom from the law of sin and death. And this is actually what changes our lives. Taking us from one degree of glory to another as Paul writes in another letter to the Corinthians. Let's pick up in verse five. Let's see how this plays out, okay? Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Here's a second contrast that we see. The flesh's mind is self consumed, and the spirit filled life is marked by Christ consumed motives. Look in this passage. How many times does it talk about the mind, setting our mind? It's five times in this little passage. Five times. Paul contrasts the outcomes of what setting our mind on the flesh looks like versus setting our mind on the things of the spirit. One of them leads to death and condemnation, one of them leads to life and peace, which is what we all desire. One is hostile to God, but the other actually pleases the Lord. I I find verse 8 very compelling in this passage. Those who are in the flesh cannot, okay, cannot please God. Being in the flesh means that we are not submitting to the law of God or the word of God, but rather we're submitting to our own feelings and emotions. And look around us. We're in a world full of people who submit to their feelings and their emotions over the truth. And look where it's led us. We are more broken and pitiful as a culture that's so wayward. It's sickening. Why? It's because the world, like Paul mentions earlier in the same letter to the Romans in chapter one, verse 25, says that the world has exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worship and serve what God has created instead of the creator himself. This leads to brokenness. It leads to anxiety, defeat, hardship, depression, guilt, fear. And it ultimately leads to condemnation. Why? Because our feelings and our emotions, our flesh, are influenced and desperately infected by sin. And in the flesh, we cannot please God. But thanks be to God, who through Jesus Christ gave us the spirit to be alive in us, to reconcile us to himself, to seal us for eternity, and empower us to do what we could not do in the flesh, to set our minds on the things of the Spirit You know, at Harvest, we have this phrase that we say a lot in the counseling room and even from the pulpit. You probably know it. You do what you do and you feel how you feel because you think what you think. Many of you have gone through soul care, I guess, right? This is great. Where do we get this? Right here in Romans 8. But interestingly enough, changing the way we think is what changes the way we feel. It's not the other way around. And this isn't just a problem that we have in the modern church. It's obviously a problem that we see here in the early church, not just at the church uh, in Rome, but also in uh, the the Colossian church and the Philippian church. Let me just give you a couple examples here. Paul writing to them. Colossians 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And then verse 5 in that same passage says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Let's jump over to Philippians 4 where he talks about setting our minds on other things. It says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things Whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Here's the thing. Sadly, many people go about life miserable because they think that in order to change something in their life or in order to get rid of something that they know doesn't honor the Lord, they have to feel like doing that before they do it. When in fact, it's the opposite. It's a mental resolve that says, I'm gonna be dead to this thing even though you know your flesh and your feelings don't want you to be dead to it. You know, I have the privilege in opportunity to meet with a lot of people over the last 15 years of ministry, and um, I really do count it a privilege if someone reaches out and says, you know what, hey, you know, pastor, I'm struggling with this area in my life, or I'm addicted to this, or I have this area in my life that I know doesn't honor the Lord. Can I meet with you and talk about, like, how how can the Bible help me? How can God's word help me in this situation? And I love meeting with people uh, about this and and seeing fruit often in uh, the lives of people who will submit their hearts and their minds to the word of God over their feelings, but it's interesting. It all kind of starts the same. Something happened, and so they tell me what happened. This happened, and then they go on this barrage of sentences that all start with this. I just feel like. You know, this happened, so I just feel like, I just feel like, I just feel like the injustice. I just feel like, and I'm so hurt. I just feel like, I just feel like, I just feel like, I just feel like. I've gotten to a custom now where I actually will just make mental note how many times they say the words, I just feel like, and then I bring it up to them later (laughs) and I'm like do you know how many times you said I just feel like in what you described to me I've even given input into specific things that they've mentioned or the way that they're feeling I said the Bible speaks directly about this and directly to this situation directly to what you're experiencing right now and it says this and it says to do this in response to that and I've even had them look at me and say yeah I see that in God's word but I just feel like God doesn't want me to worry about that right now here's the problem with that if what you feel differs to what god's word says then you have a choice to make and that choice is this will i live by the flesh my feelings that i know results in death and condemnation or will i submit my feelings to the truth of what god's word says that will lead me to life and peace which is what i truly desire this is a faith issue family Either we believe in the Word of God and submit to it in every way as our ultimate authority, even over our feelings and our emotions, or we don't believe in the Word of God. Yes, but Chris, don't my feelings matter? And you're hurting my feelings talking this way right now. Yes, okay, yes, your feelings do matter. If your feelings walk in tandem with the Bible and what it says, there's no greater place to be in life than having this precious time where your feelings walk in step with what God's word says. It's when your feelings are ill-informed and you start to believe your feelings over the truth of God's word. That's when God's word has to win out. Otherwise, you will lose big and it will hurt you. We've seen it time and time again. It's so sad. You know our feelings they ebb and flow by external influences all the time. If we allowed our feelings to be just as influenced by the Bible as they are Instagram or as they are by what our friends think or by what we think about our friends or by anything else external, if we allowed the Bible to speak as much to our feelings as we allowed everything else to, that would be a drastic change just in and of itself. So set your mind on the things of the spirit. And I want to give you three practical ways that we can set our mind on the things of the Spirit. Three resolves, if you will, things that we have our mind made up about. And these are commitments that you decide to make in your heart, okay? First one, have in your mind, have your mind made up that God's word is alive and it's your source of life. Are you ingesting God's word enough to do this? Deuteronomy says that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you actually live by God's word and view it as food more than even food is? You wanna see God drastically change your life? Start every day in his word. And listen, every time I say that, I feel the rub. People are like, well, I don't have a Bible degree. How can I do that? Or I don't have a degree in theology. How can I be in God's word all the time or understand it? Listen, God's word is accessible to everyone, I love the pastor that said that God's word is like a, a, a body of water. The babies wade in the shallow end, but the theologians can't get to the bottom of it, right? God's word is accessible to everyone, and you don't need to be a theologian to open it up and read it. Or do what I do. Start at the beginning and turn on uh, an app I like called Dwell or the Bible app or whatever. Have it read it to you. Some, you know, My ADD kind of goes away from me when I try to read something. So I have it being read to me. And I love that. And uh, what I do simply, and actually Pastor Ben and I are doing this right now together, where we're going through all of the letters of Paul in the New Testament, but month by month. So it's May. So we are in the book of Colossians right now. And uh, we listen to the book of Colossians every day, or most days, We try to do every day, and we just say a simple prayer like, God, help me see something in this uh, reading of your word that I'm listening to in Colossians again on this day. Help something stand out and uh, impact my heart in a fresh way today. I'm telling you, God answers that prayer every time you pray that. And just the other day, um, you know, I've got younger children, and um, getting them out the door to school, I tell you, it is a faith test. And the other day, trying to get my kids out the door to get to school on time, and I'm like, "Don't you want to go? Don't you want to get to school on time and not have a tardy?" Like, I let's just say I lost my temper a little bit, and I was more than frustrated and visibly frustrated. And and so I drop them off at school, and I turn on the Dwell app, and I'm listening to Colossians. I'm like, "God, just give me a fresh word today from this letter." And Colossians two hits me in the face like a ton of bricks. Do not provoke your children, lest you discourage them. I'm like, uh, a lot of feelings in that moment. Like, yes, but God, you don't understand. Uh, God, you don't know what I just went through. God, you don't know what I'm feeling right now. I think my feelings need, nope, 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 nope. I had conviction. Here's the second thing. Have your mind made up that God's word is then going to win over what you feel. Okay. You need to resolve this in your heart. You're gonna feel all the things. I felt all of the things, but God's word has to win. And in that moment, I had conviction on my heart. I'm like, you know what, I need to make this right. I need to ask for forgiveness. I shouldn't have done that. God's word needs to win, and here's the thing: we can't just do this naturally because we're in the flesh. We need to train ourselves, just like in anything that we train ourselves to do. We need to train ourselves to uh, recognize what God's word says, and when we feel something that we know is contradictory to God's word, train ourselves to know: I got to, I got to do with what I got to do what God's word says over than what I feel. It's what Pastor Cal preached on at the very beginning of this series. If you want to see real change in your life, it has to start with a resolve that God's word always wins, always. And here's the third thing. Have your mind made up a resolve that God gave you others in your life to help you do this. Okay, you weren't meant to do life alone. The family of God is so vital in helping us see what God's word says, helping us think clearly on how to set our minds on the things of the spirit. I'm so grateful for my small group and the guys that rally around me when I come in the small group on a Wednesday night and I have all the feels about something that happened that week or an injustice that I experienced or whatever and I'll sit down in that split time with my guys and they'll look at me. I know Mario's in the room. He'll look at me and be like, bro, it's not what God's word has for you on this. And I'll be like, yeah, but I just feel like, no, 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 it doesn't matter. This is what God's word says and we need to commit to this. God puts the body of Christ in our lives to rally around us, to help us live a life of godliness and to pursue him for his glory as a team, not individually. So where does this lead? What is the answer to the big question this morning? What does spirit life actually look like? How do we not miss what it means to walk in the spirit? Here's the big answer this morning. Walking in the Spirit means I'm actually free. Remember, in verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit sets you free in Christ Jesus. And what Paul does here is he makes a turn in the text here at verse 9, talking to believers in Jesus Christ who have the Spirit of God living in them. And what that freedom looks like, it starts with the amazing reality that God himself dwells in you, that he's with you. It's the presence of God. God's heart is so evident in Paul's writing. God wants what's best for you. Did you know that? God wants what's best for you. You Now I think there's this misconception about the Christian life that it's only ever depressing and always sad and grievous because of the reality that we're sinners and our flesh is always at battle and we're just always gonna struggle and it's just trudging through the mud day after day after day until ultimately we die. But then it's gonna be amazing because we'll be with the Lord, right? And though that is true, that ultimately our hope is secured because we have eternity set apart for us with Christ Jesus, it doesn't mean we have to live a miserable life. Life in the Spirit is the good life, it's right now. And our joy may be lacking if we live this way because we focus so much on the iniquity of our sin that we lose sight of the life that we can have in Christ right now. Do you know what I mean when I say the iniquity of our sin? This last week, my wife and I had the privilege of leading worship for a conference um, uh, for Revive Our Hearts and Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth and her ambassadors. And so we're leading worship, mainly my wife is leading worship, and I'm playing piano and and assisting her in that. And we're at this conference, and one of the speakers during this conference was speaking on Psalm 32, and in Psalm 32, it mentions sin in two different words in the Hebrew. Uh, And we liken these words pretty much the same. We think uh, it's sin and iniquity, but different words in the Hebrew, And a lot of times we think these are just one and the same, but they're actually quite different, and um, we see that all over Scripture where it mentions sin, but also then it says iniquity soon after that. It's not just poetic, although it is poetic, it is a way to distinguish between the two. We see it in Isaiah 53, a very common passage that we know. It says, he was wounded for our sins, our transgressions, that's one word, and he was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The difference is that sin is the action that led out of our iniquity. Okay? Iniquity is the status of what we are in the flesh, whereas sin is the actions that we do because of our fleshly desires. Does that make sense? And the beauty of what I heard in this session was that God's word makes it so clear that he forgives us not only for our sin but for our iniquity. Let me rephrase that. God not only forgives us for what we did, he forgives us for who we are in all of the ick and the gross and the stuff that we know our flesh leads us to do and the sin bends and the past guilt and the shame you name it. That's the iniquity of our sin and we are forgiven of even our iniquity. Isn't that amazing? It's so freeing. That should be a a reality that gives life to us in our spirit. And that's why it says here in verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to what? Your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. That's huge because how often do we walk around knowing that we're saved but still feeling guilty about who we used to be or what we used to do? Part of God's saving work in your life is to forgive you and remove your sin as far as the east is from the west, Scripture says, but also forgive you of your iniquity. You don't have to live in the guilt and shame that your past decisions have caused any longer. You don't have to live in that fear anymore. We can truly live a life marked by freedom through the Spirit in Christ and even, as Paul says later, boast in our weaknesses because that magnifies Christ all the more. So I want to finish with four ways that life in the Spirit allows us to experience true freedom that really changes us from the inside out. And I want to pull these right from the text. So follow along with me at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here's the first way we see freedom experienced in walking in step with the Spirit It's this, freedom from death sin produces. The Spirit, God himself who lives in you, it's a gift. He's a gift. When we bow the knee and receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior and submit to his lordship in our lives, the Spirit dwells within us and sets us free. And the scripture says, whom the Son sets free is what? Truly free indeed. And the greatest freeing thing about a relationship with Christ is that our ultimate punishment that we deserve is no longer on the table because Christ already died for it. What the Spirit does now for the believer is help us see and start scalpeling through our heart and our mind and our lives to see the areas that don't match up with Scripture or don't match up with God's glory and convicts us of those, identifies us of them, and helps us put those things to death, not by our own power, but by his power in us, the presence of God in us, the spirit walking in step with them so we can have a life filled with joy and peace that we so long to have and can have in Christ Jesus. I think of it this way when I look at the battles that wage war in my body on uh, sin, and I still get tempted all the time in many ways. And I, uh, this was something that was told to me when I was really struggling years and years ago, and a mentor in my life uh, said, hey, if Christ um, died for that, you can be dead to it. If Christ died for that, you can be dead to it. And another way of saying that is, I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. And throughout my life, I've just trained myself. When there's a fiery arrow that the enemy shoots at me of temptation, tugging on my fleshly desires, tugging on my sin bends in my heart and my life, I can look at that arrow knowing that God gives me the power, the same power that rose Christ from the dead, to be able to stare at that arrow and say, I'm dead to that because Christ died for it. That's the power of God Himself in us, alive in us. But Chris, I know it's it's it's. I know what you're saying, but it's hard to remember this when I'm in the heat of the battle. It's hard to remember this when I'm fighting for my life in temptation. I just I just feel like it's too hard, or uh, I'm too far gone, or I'm too deep into sin at this point, and I'm a lost cause. Wrong, wrong. That's a feeling that will not win against what God's word says here. So let's continue. Verse 14. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I'm gonna give you the next two just as a freebie, okay? This is a two for You know, experiencing freedom means that we have freedom from slavery to sin and freedom from fear The enemy is a master at trying to deceive you into thinking that you're still a slave, isn't he? But if you are in Christ, you're no longer a slave to fear. You're no longer a slave to sin. Sin has no hold on you any longer. It has been paid for, and you have been released from its bondage to live a life where the chains are no longer choking the life out of us. That is a truly freeing thing that's available to you in Christ Jesus. Uh, a lot of people I've talked to have talked to about this where I, I dream vividly every night, okay? I am so jealous of the people who, like Austin Averill, one of my best friends, uh, told me last night as I told this illustration, he's like, oh dude, I only dream like three times a year. That's it. I'm so... I'm so jealous of that because I every single night I go from this very real reality and I fall asleep into another very real reality. And a lot of times it's terrifying and I'll wake up sometimes from those vivid dreams not knowing which reality is actually true. So if you think about me, just pray for me at night because... It's, it's not, I, I often wake up not feeling rested because I'm, I, I, I truly feel this is an area that the enemy really torments me. It really keeps me humble because of the terror and the nightmares that I have. And I have a recurring nightmare, and maybe you can relate to this one. Um, I've had this for years, and it never goes away. And I, I pray for it to go away, but it just doesn't, and it keeps me humble. It's a thorn in the flesh, if you will, I guess. Maybe you've had this, you've registered for a class, and you never went to the class. In my dream, I'm always caught realizing this and trying to find where this classroom is. I can't open. The, I can't remember my combination for my locker, and I, I'm finding I don't have clothes on, and I, I need to find where this is. And if I don't get to this class, I don't take this final exam. I don't graduate, and I'm going to end up on the streets. That's the worst feeling. And I, on a weekly basis, I dream that. In my dreams, I am enslaved by the fear in my high school college stresses. But then I wake up and I remember I already graduated three times. <laughs> I don't have homework anymore. I am not in school anymore. Hallelujah. Won't he do it, somebody? <laughs> like that, I have little praise moments in the middle of the night when I wake up from these terror, these night terrors. And that, listen, that's what it's like to be in Christ, okay? Okay. He has already won, fam. He has already graduated for you, friends. The enemy wants you to think that you're stuck in the bad dream where fear and anxiety is winning. But wake up. The enemy has already been defeated. Amen. This frees us to pursue the Lord with everything we have. It frees us to pursue him for his glory, laying aside our own glory, freedom from slavery to sin, and also freedom from the fear That frees us with the truth that this life isn't about us anymore. It's about Jesus and giving him the glory for who he is and for what he's done for us. We don't have to be afraid any longer of what other people think about us. We don't have to uh, stand in judgment of what the enemy thinks about us. He's already lost and he knows it. He's just trying to deceive you to think that it's different. In Christ, we have received, get this, a great gift. The spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. God is a loving father. And here's your regular helpful reminder that God isn't an old grumpy grandpa with a big beard upstairs with a scowl on his face that doesn't want to talk to you. That's not our God. That's not the God of the Bible. This is our God. He's a loving and gracious, faithful father who calls us his friend, who calls us his children. And here's the last thing that he gives us in walking in step with the spirit It's this, freedom from doubt. I love verse 16. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If it were under our own strength, we would be hopeless. I'm so thankful that it's the Spirit that bears witness with us, with uh, with our spirit, that we are children of God. What this means is that we're not children children of God. We aren't adopted as his children because of anything we did. And that's why they use, that's why Scripture uses the imagery of adoption. Babies don't choose to be adopted. They are adopted by the families that choose them. God has chosen us as his children. We are children of God because he adopted us, because he gave us his spirit. And that spirit bears witness in our lives when we're going through the crud and struggles in our lives to say, hey, listen, it's okay. I got you. You're my child. You are saved. I bought you at the price. I sealed you with the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's okay. Push, push forward. Strive hard for my glory. It's for your blessing I'm so grateful that God gave us his spirit to bear witness to our spirit because that gives us the courage to press on toward life and godliness through his power, not our own power. It's his power. And we are free because God gives us his freedom and his spirit not only challenges us, it encourages us and strengthens us, but also proves himself to us, bearing witness to our spirit. Scripture uses marriage as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church and You know, we all know this, marriage isn't just the wedding day. In fact, many young couples that I've walked alongside as they're going into their wedding day, you often have to survive the wedding day in order to get to your marriage, don't you? Marriage is a lifetime walking hand in hand, pursuing each other in a growing relationship out of love for the glory of God. And that's why scripture uses marriage as the picture of what the relationship is with Christ and his church. That the love that we would that he showed us would be reciprocated with the love that we show him in pursuing him and walking in step with his spirit and the same power that rose Christ from the dead to be alive in us, to honor the Lord in our lives. And my fear is that we would somehow view our salvation like a wedding day with no relationship. It was just a thing in the past. It was a prayer I said, but really nothing has changed. That's not what salvation is meant to be in our lives. When Christ saved us, he enters into relationship with us, and his spirit bears witness with us that we can walk step with the spirit, in the spirit, and that relationship grows in love and maturity and stature and it's out of our love for the Lord that leads us to pursuing him more and more. This also leads us to be shining lights into a very dark world that so desperately needs Jesus. I think about the pillars of faith in this world and our generation that strove very hard to convince people of this truth that a relationship with Jesus is something that's a life-giving, full of blessing, something that's so worth pursuing, and uh, a life that is necessary. I think of those pillars of the faith, and we lost one this week. Probably uh, the pastor that we quote more on this platform than any other pastor, Timothy Keller, went to be with the Lord on Friday morning after um, a long battle with pancreatic cancer. He was a pillar in our generation, pointing people to the gospel and pointing people to Jesus, a pillar. And I bring that up not just to uh, not just to remind you to pray for the family as they grieve this loss, and pray for that church as they grieve the loss of their pastor. But I I saw this posted from his son this week about his last words or some of his last words right before he died, and really, it's a legacy statement for what a spirit life looks like. He said this before he passed away. There's no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. I love that. He really echoes what Paul says when he says, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Life in the spirit allows you to be able to know that you know, that you know, that you know, that you are a child of the king bought with a price, sealed with a promise, and that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. And someday because of what Jesus Christ did and only because of what Jesus Christ did, If we believe that by faith, that we will someday be standing before the Lord, absent in the body, present with the Lord, just like our brother Timothy Keller is right now, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And there's no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more struggle, no more sin, no more death, no more condemnation because of what Christ has done. All glory to him. All glory to the Lord for what he has done. Would you pray with me? Father, you are a good and gracious and faithful God. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for making a way out of no way. We thank you for convicting our hearts even now over the areas of sin in our lives that we need to yield to you and allow your spirit to walk in step with us to teach us how to live in step with him uh, thank you, God, for your spirit to bear witness to our spirits that you have bought us with a price, that you have sealed us, that you have adopted us as sons and daughters, that we are your children. God, thank you for that constant reminder through your spirit. Thank you for giving us the same power that raised Christ from the dead to be able to be empowered going through this life and defeating sin and death and glorifying you and experiencing the blessing of a life following you in step with the Spirit. You are a gracious God. You didn't have to do any of that, but you did it out of your grace and out of your 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 love for us. And to that, God, we thank you and we praise you and we give you all the glory because you are worthy of all the glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.